Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Finch Show podcast. Um, as always, our podcast is sponsored and brought to you by Blackstar Woodcrafts. My buddy Scott, who lives up in Michigan, he does some amazing, amazing, amazing things. If you haven't checked him out, you can find him, Blackstar Woodcrafts, either on Facebook or on Instagram. Um, he's got plenty of products up there, the products that he does, everything from bath caddies to bottle stoppers. He specializes in pens. He does rings, um, all kinds of really, really cool stuff. Absolutely 100% check him out. He's extremely diverse, extremely talented. And if you see something up there that you've got an idea for that you don't exactly see that he has, message him directly through there. Say, hey, I'm so-and-so. I'm interested in something like this. He would be happy to go back and forth with you, have conversations about what it is that you want, what it is that you don't want, what you want it to look like. And from there, he can kind of give you a price and give you an idea of how long it will take him to get that to you. I've got um, several things he's done. I've got this really cool bottle stopper that he made for us uh, for wine bottles that is really, really neat. It's like a it's like a metal cone with concentric rubber rings on it. And on the top of it is this really nice ridged, like blue swirly polished wood. It just looks absolutely freaking incredible. Um, both the wedding bands that my wife and I wear, he made. It's a metal ring with a wood inlay that's engraved and polished and everything. It looks absolutely amazing. Definitely highly recommend endorse checking them out. Even if it wasn't for the fact that he's sponsoring this podcast, I would say go, go check them out. Um, and be, but because he is a sponsor of this podcast, if you go and you message him, um, let him know you got there through this podcast and you will get 10% off your order. Just say, Hey, Finch sent me here. He'll hook you up. He's a good guy. Do not hesitate to get in contact with him. Um, the guest on my podcast today is the first guest that I've had actually what you would call in studio. It's just my kitchen, but in studio since, um, you know, COVID kind of sent everything sideways. Um, but his name is Frederick Williams. He is a not only a longtime friend of mine, he is definitely the first friend of mine. We met, we were little, little kids. We're talking, like, I want to say I was friends with him before I was even in kindergarten. So that's literally how long we've known each other now that I'm a 40-year-old man sitting here. Um, <clears throat> I was very excited to have him on. He was one of the people who, from the very beginning, when I began to conceptualize this podcast, I wanted to have him on. Um, so he was more than gracious to make a drive down to Freeport and come and have a sit and have a conversation with me. And it went really, really well. I was really excited about this podcast and I think it turned out great. So I am going to stop rambling and just turn it over to the main attraction. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, here is Fred. <laughs> Sitting here with Frederick. Thanks for making the trip. Thank, thanks. For, how far of a drive is that for you? It's about an hour. Normally, I take uh, seventy-five. I don't know if you should pretty again because North Oak, you know that. Yeah, very yeah, familiar. It goes through Rockton, goes through Rock City, all those. It's an easy drive. You know, pretty simple. You can probably do a little bit more than the speed limit if you're not dealing with any traffic. Right. <laughs> but you know, sometimes if the weather's bad, I'll. You know, I'll take a 20 to I-90. Mm-hmm. You know, that you was, you know, have you seen the kind of stuff they're doing recently with I-90? Oh, it's insane. Yeah. It's insane. They're going to run it all the way from the Dells, I think? Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, that's 90 for you. Yeah. It, you know, it's always, always, always in construction. Um, how long have we known each other? Oh, gee, since the early, I think the early 80s, I think. Maybe early 80s? 83, 84? I want to say, I think it was at least before I was in kindergarten. Yeah. So I want to say since I was like five, maybe four. My family's going to laugh when I say I was four because we have this running joke in my family that I always say everything important to me happened when I was four years old. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a long time, but I don't think we've seen each other other than social media. Yeah, we've seen each other once, and I think it was 1988 when my, uh, my family moved back to Freeport from where my dad was um, transferred to the Honeywell Microswitch plant in, in uh, North Carolina. Oh, okay, to right. Get things set up. It was, it was I, I liked it there, and I was able to do a lot of things that I did back here in Freeport when I was a little kid, run around, go through the woods and stuff. It was fun. My mother and sister hated it. Oh, really? Yeah. They oh. hated being away from their family. Oh, yeah. And, of course, my dad, being who he was, was like, I want to make my, my family happy, so let's move on back. He took a pay cut. He, you know, like, mm-hmm. let's just come on back home. And I think it was for the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Freeport's kind of a special town like that. I don't, um, and maybe just has something to say with people wherever they're from. That mm-hmm. something about it just being home. Um, I don't, I don't like to sit and point out all the glaring issues that Freeport has. I don't like to sit and point out all the problems. It, you know, like any town, it's got issues. Yeah. It's got stuff it needs to work on. The most important, fortunate thing about Freeport is the same problem that Rockford has. A lot of these midwestern towns that in the fifties, sixties, and seventies were built on industry. And then when the industry left, there was a semi-hole that was just sort of left everywhere. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> But on the other hand, it's home. I'm the same way. You know, I didn't move states away, but, you know, um, we moved to Winnebago when I was in middle school. Mm-hmm. And then I bounced all around. I lived in Rockford. I lived in Byron. Um, lived in Winnebago again a couple times. But when me and my wife got together and it was time to settle... This, we bought this, it was 10 years ago now, we bought this house here in Freeport, and it just, you know, it just, it feels like home. Yeah. I can't, you know, and even those who are listening, who have listened to the past podcasts said, Julie on for the second show, and she was the same way. We were just talking before the show, she was from Freeport, and went to NIU, and then went to Michigan State, Ugh. and then, um, yeah, taught in Frostburg, Maryland, and then, you know, came back home to Freeport, so... Well, I'm glad to have you back in town. Do you have any family still living here in town? I have one cousin that still lives in town, and a couple, a few of my friends still live here, which I come to visit mm-hmm. uh, often. You know, I'm, I'm godson to most of his kids. So, oh, okay. You know, so <laughs> I usually come back and visit. I haven't visited much because he's got a newborn that's only a few months old with COVID. Oh, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. causing me kind of get issues, but I hope I get a chance to see him soon. So. Big video gamer, just like me. Good man. And he literally named his most recent kid Madden. Nice. That's <laughs> <laughs> spelled a little bit differently, but he plays Madden crazy thing. So right. Yeah. Well, well, good for him. There, there's nothing wrong with that. I got a buddy named Jeremy. His um, God, his child is named Wayne. Mm-hmm. After Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne, I got another buddy who's got a child named Xander after Xander from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, mm-hmm. and then my youngest is named Logan, who's uh, named after Wolverine from Marvel Comics. As much as mm-hmm. older generations of my family roll their eyes at that, I'm like, hey, it's still a legit name. It's just you know, it, it, it's cool for us. What um, you, 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 we're both really big into video games. What are you playing nowadays? I'm usually on the PlayStation, pretty much mostly. Mm-hmm. 
Atlanta, but I really don't have any kind of uh, preference or anything like that. I play PlayStation, I play Xbox, I play Nintendo. I've really been playing, I just finished playing The Last of Us Part 2. Oh. That is a very hot button issue. Yeah. Right <laughs> yeah. Have you heard anything about it? Um, was it over the, Ellie, Ellie's the main character, right? Yes. Did it have to do with her sexual preference? Was that what the big row was over? or? Well, there's a there's a certain segment of the pot of the internet community, so social media, you know, the get woke, go broke crowd. Oh, and, yeah. And it's definitely problematic. The main protagonist being a lesbian character. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, but what I found recently, the most thing, p- issues that people have with it is the plot points, which is one of the main protagonists from the first game. Corey, if anybody's listening, spoilers. <laughs> if you haven't tried it and looking to try it out, uh, gets killed and early on in the game. Okay. And this is a very beloved character. Mm-hmm. Personally, you know, if anybody played the first game, they should know. Anybody can die at any moment, just like The Walking Dead right. or Game of Thrones or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, it was a big thing. I remember, like, after the Red Wedding and Game of Thrones, oh, I'm going to quit watching the show. <laughs> and then they turned back in. So this is basically what's happened now because this character got killed and they, they're going off about it. But what I like about it, I like games with good storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what this has. And I think the overall theme are missed from this game is how you can get lost in hate and revenge and you can lose yourself and lose everything you have trying to get it mm-hmm. and and that's what the, the two characters that are in the game do they spend this whole time throughout the whole game trying to get revenge on each other only into the end realize it's not worth it they lost everything together yeah and they you know so huh I would have to. I haven't. I the first one I played not very much of. Um, my oldest, who's seventeen, was flipping out for months over that game coming out, um, to the point where we had an agreement over whether he was paying for it or I was paying for it, which was directly tied to his grades at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I ended up paying for it, so I'm proud of him. Good yeah, job. Um, <clears throat> but I haven't gotten to talk to him much. He started playing other than a few texts, being like, "Oh, dude, it's badass. It's yeah. so badass." And yeah. I'm like, "Okay, well that." That's good to hear, but you know, there's sometimes, it seems like, and it's unfortunate that it sort of permeates the sci-fi nerd community, because when you start seeing headlines scrolling through Google over fans over upset over this or upset over that, yeah. and you read the headline, and I got to admit, a lot, oftentimes I don't read the article, because I'm like, you just sigh, you're just yeah. like, oh, come on, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's the, the, the way things are, I think, with social media. It's, it's the double-edged sword where it gives everybody a voice to every voice stands out and makes it really don't matter. Right. You know, I, I mean, we, how many times have we seen this already? We've seen it with the season of Game of Thrones, the, the season finale, Star Wars. I know you know your Star Wars. Oh, man. And how, how people were with that, mm-hmm. you know. And the thing of it is, is what I think, what people have to be careful with is if you demand from people who make any kind of media entertainment, TV, music, video games, if they get to a point now where they have to focus test everything that they do to make sure that the fans are going to like it, then it's going to stifle creativity. Right. And that's what you don't want. Mm-hmm. So, 
but I think this is hopefully this is a B the lesson to be learned for this. Unfortunately, I think it's going only going to get worse. Right. With every kind of thing that has any kind of hype behind it. Mm-hmm. But it's just if what you got to do as a consumer of any kind of any of this kind of media, you just got to tune it out. Right. Like you know what. This is, I'm getting this, I'm watching this, I'm buying this for me. Mm-hmm. And what I want to get out of it, what I think to expect, you know. And if it, if it doesn't meet it, it's fine. You yeah. Know, you move it on and, and learn something else. But yeah, I'm not going to, you know, I really never understand the concept of getting on social media to talk about things I don't like so much. Right. You know, <laughs> I'd rather talk about things I do like right. that I don't like. Uh-huh. And I hope that more people with future generations will start to consider that. Yeah. You know, I, I know exactly what you mean. I sort of feel that way. I, I sort of equivalent it to, like, you know, the show The Bachelorette. Yeah. I don't watch it. I'm not into it. It's not my thing. Yeah. That would be the, the equivalent of me going out of my way to go on Facebook just to go into those groups and pages and talk trash to those people about how much I don't like it. Mm-hmm. I don't watch it. So, therefore, I don't have a say in it. Right. You know? And a lot of times I wonder, if we saw this a lot with the newest trilogy of Star Wars. There was a mm-hmm. lot of crankiness. And yeah. there are times that I wonder, we, we, don't, we don't know the statistics. You know what I mean? Like when it says fans are upset, okay, is it 12% of the fans who are just really, really loud? Yeah, I think that's Where it. the majority of the people enjoyed that's it? it? And that's what I think it is too. I think it's that and it's like, they need a headline. Mm-hmm. You know, they need something to write about. So if you have something that's really, really popular, but you have a very small selection of fans who are upset about something, it's real easy to just say, well, fans are upset. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you mean by fans? Exactly. You mean five people in a forum who are throwing a fit over something because they didn't like the color of somebody's jacket, and therefore, exactly. you know, I, I think you're absolutely maybe right. some YouTuber that has <laughs> maybe at most 400,000 followers and think that he represents the voice of a nation. Right. No, you don't. You really don't, because a lot of people... Don't pay attention to social media as you think they do. Right. And, you know. Or it could be a YouTuber with only 40,000 viewers who wants more. Yeah. And so, therefore, starts angrily throwing a fit and it sort of becomes their shtick. Hot button time. Yeah. get a lot of clicks. Right. get a lot of clicks. You know, and we see that. I I always laugh when um, I think about people like Rush Limbaugh. Mm -hmm. Rush Limbaugh, I think, is a a special case because he he was a radio personality. Yeah. And his very first gig in radio was being on a liberal left-wing radio show. Mm -hmm. And his job was to be a pompous Mm right-winger for the audience to laugh at. Of course, he ended up playing what we have to admit the character so well, he became the most popular person on the show and eventually got his own show. And now he's the Rush Limbaugh that we know of. So now I don't doubt for a second that Rush Limbaugh as a human being is is a Republican, is a conservative. But at the end of the day, he's doing a shtick, and nothing, nothing drives traffic more than outrage. Mm-hmm. Absolutely nothing, you know. So that's why, you know, that it, we could get into a bigger conversation about issues with the media doing exactly that. Right. But it's just like, uh, just like you were, you know, we're talking about where it's real easy for somebody to be like, well, you know what, I don't like this, and that gets people paying attention, and right. it ends up being a bigger, bigger issue than I think it really is. Wasn't Bill O'Reilly kind of similar to, started out as a big Hollywood entertainment media reporter, and then once he started getting into, you know, started getting that following, he realized, because I think that's what, like, I think there's something definitely a lot to what you said is true. Mm-hmm. There's there's a definitely a market 
for people who's going to be pompous and bombastic and go up against, especially was at the time with 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 Rush Limbaugh, a president they really didn't like, right? And Bill Clinton, right? And so mm-hmm. there was a market for that, and like you said, maybe he may have had some sort of conservative leanings. But I think when you're in that circle so much, when you're at the buffet, you start tasting a little bit more. Right. And all of a sudden, it becomes all that you're about. Well, especially yeah. when you start building a following and you become addicted to feeding that following and feeding yeah. them the, the, what they want and growing bigger and bigger and bigger. And exactly. Yeah, I don't. there are times I wonder with people like that if they ever get to the point where they look up and realize how far they've drifted from shore and how from where it was that they intended to go to where they ended up. Or maybe they're just like, oh, it's a job. I make my money. I think once they reach a certain level of fame, it becomes who they are. Yeah. You know, it's what, you know, that's what he is right now. Mm-hmm. So that's what they expect of him, and, you know, I'm going to give him what they want. Right. You know, I don't think he, he probably doesn't think about it all that much, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's sad because as we're talking about that, you know, it, it's crazy that it, it almost mirrors Trump's presidency. Yes. And who he became, because that was all built upon fear and about... I'm sure a lot of those issues that he was banging, that he's banging the pulpit over, that before all this president thing started, he couldn't have given a crap about one way or another. Not at all. But because it became one of those things that it was easy to whip people up in a frenzy over, it's real easy to just start, oh, well, I'll tell you what, they're doing this and they're doing that, and people get mad, and <laughs> it absolutely baffles me. You know, and I honestly think that before he ran for president, I think the majority of political issues that divide left and right, he probably didn't have a stance on. No. You know? No, he liked being the playboy of the town. That was his thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and then all uh, in his later years when he became Mr. Your Father. Yeah. You know, that was that was his thing. But somewhere along the line, if you notice, when the popularity of the apprentice started going down, he started really taking to the Twitter. Mm-hmm. And then, more and more of that built. Yeah. And of course, like what we've been talking about, once that following builds up, like, oh, I think I got something here. Right. Yeah. And then just decided to just keep running with it, you know, and, you know, it's almost too bad. I, um, there, there are a lot of times I wonder about him if something didn't happen medically, you know, because I was watching a documentary that was done about 15 years ago and he was the one they interviewed for it. And when he's talking, he's clear and concise and he's intelligent and using, you know, higher level language and stuff like that. And you watch him talk today and it's just blithering nonsense. And you have to wonder, you know, somewhere along the way, did he have a stroke? Did something happen? Because it almost seems like it's two completely different people. Other than the fact that he looks the same, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, But, yeah, I don't know what to make about that. And I sort of... I'm not going to lie, man. I sort of feel like this upcoming election scares the crap out of me some. It does. It it really does. I mean, of course, we see the latest poll. He's down 12, 13, 14 uh, points in some polls. But he's just worried about if he can rip, rip his, whip his followers into a frenzy. And you can only hope that the other side is can be motivated enough to vote mm-hmm. where they wasn't in 2016. Right. I mean, at this point in 2016, it looked like Hillary was a shoo-in. Yeah. You know? And I'm not saying anything. I'm not a fan of Hillary at all, but no. um, it, it looked <laughs> it, it looked like the Trump thing was a joke. Like, yeah. it was just going to be, it was the 
the party was going to fall flat on their face and Hillary was going to walk away with this thing in the landslide. And, well, we found out that that was, that was not the case. But, you know, he's already rattling the saber about um, voter fraud and every, you know, being 100% against mail-in voting. And, it, you know, it almost scares me if we end up in some kind of situation where he wins the popular vote but doesn't win the electoral vote. Right. And just flat out refuses to leave the White House. Yeah. You know, wants, wants to sue and have lawsuits and they drag on and drag on. And, you know, he's the kind of person who would be what he has and what he wants to do is more important than holding the country hostage for a certain amount of time, exactly. you know, and I'm not, anybody who knows me knows I'm not a Biden fan either. I'm not, I, I am not yeah, thrilled about it. definitely not my first, second or third choice. Right. I was definitely a Bernie Sanders person right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And, and the thing of it is, is what I think people don't understand about Bernie people is that most of us really aren't trying to create a revolution. We're pragmatic. Mm -hmm. Medicare for all makes sense. 100%. Um, Green New Deal makes sense. Getting out from under crippling student loan debt, Amory, Amen. <laughs> Amen. makes sense. <laughs> and, and that's what I think people really gravitated to him, is that he is talking about things that, that we need. And I think that's unfortunately one of the problems that the, the liberal side or the left has to deal with is not only do they have to um, see how, how should I put this they have to basically try to meet the needs of their constituents mm -hmm. try to do something where like well what are you going to do for me where as Trump his followers do they don't have no demands of him at all. No. They're like, no, we don't you know, it's like, well, is there anything you should do for us? Like, no, we never asked that question. What, right. what what should you do for us to make our lives better? Yeah. We don't get that. Where on the other side they have to do that and also fend off the different attacks that's gonna come from the right of chaos and socialism and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's it's the uh, the left and liberal side have a much harder job every time they try to get in office. Right. And I think that's some things that people really don't understand. Well, and I think a lot of what's rearing its ugly head is that the, and we've seen this before in politics, but right now, especially uh, on the left, there is there's a definite schism. Yeah. There's a huge divide through, and I hate to say it, a lot of it has to do with age brackets. Yeah. It, it really does. Mm -hmm. um, the old school Democrats who are still, you know, they're like, no, this is the way we've always done things. This is the way we're going to do things. And there's, you know, and then the other half of the party who are people who are like our age and younger who are like, no, you don't understand. There are a lot of problems that as everyday Americans we're facing that you're not addressing. You're not you're not caring about. You're not trying to. I mean, it's I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday about the difference between, you know, Trump and Biden coming up. And I'm like, we have all these problems that are facing us as a country. Trump's platform is to basically make things worse. Biden's platform is like shitty status quo, yeah. but there's no like, oh, well, if you're facing this, all like all the things that Bernie had whipped into such a frenzy about, which purely just like yours had to do with the fact that he specifically was saying to people like you and me, you're facing this problem, this problem, and this problem. These are my solutions. Yeah. This, is, this is how I want to deal with that. And <laughs> Biden's campaign is basically like, I'm not Trump. Exactly. That's that. Yeah, they think that's all they need. So let me ask you this: What what do you think is the main reason 
for the democratic establishment to fall back into let's just keep things in the status quo because when you look at history yeah even if you did all the way back to kennedy yeah every time they've been successful is when they had energy and movement behind them they Mm -hmm. had it with kennedy they had it with clinton they had it with obama I'm not sure they had it with Biden, right? Think, but I think that they just feel like, well, Trump is so bad. Yeah, that we we can put our corporate boy up there. And yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with money. Um, yeah. I tell people this all the time that I'm a progressive, I'm a liberal, mm-hmm. I am not a Democrat. Yeah. Um, anybody out there who does not think that the Democratic Party is corrupt, that the Democratic Party is not in deep with lobbyists and industries. Funding campaigns, you're, they're they're just as bad as the Republicans are. It's the it's, tax people on the yeah on the it's the it's yeah. the way the game is played in Washington. That's and no side is worse or better at it than the other. That they're both taking this money. You know, one of the oh gosh, I'm trying to remember who's the oh god one young congressman who was early on was in the Democratic field. I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, was it Booker? No, he was the one running against McConnell in Kentucky. Yeah, and pulled ahead of McGrath. God, I hope he wins. Yeah. I am really pulling for yeah. him. Uh, I can't remember why I can't remember his name. But anyway, he was the one who early on was talked about as being a Democratic favorite. You know, this young guy represents the progressive side of the party like AOC. And you go and look at it, and it's like, well, he opposes Medicare for all. And then you look like over the course of his life, the pharma- pharmaceutical industry has pumped $4 million into his campaigns. Mm-hmm. That's what we're facing. You know, and that's one of the things that I absolutely, absolutely loved about Bernie. Yeah. Because when, I, when Bernie first popped up on the scene back in 2016, my initial reaction was, this crazy old kook just wants to give everything away. Mm-hmm. I don't know how the hell he thinks we're going to pay for all this, which I think is a lot of people's initial reaction to him. And right. some people never break out of that. Mm-hmm. But the more I reached, researched into him, what, how he wanted to do things, it just kind of completely made sense. But, <clears throat> you know, the thing that I loved about him is he never ever took corporate money from anybody you know he had these campaigns where he was he was out fundraising everybody else in the field Mm -hmm. and his average contribution was 27 dollars from people just like you and me just saying yeah i'll give you 20 bucks you know whereas you know one of the things that i i got i loved it so much was in 2016 when it was down to bernie and hillary and they were having i don't know if you remember this they were having one of the presidential debates and um Hillary, in between campaign stops, was stopping doing these speeches mm-hmm. at, you know, at these different hedge fund managers and stuff like that. And yeah. Bernie flat out said to her on stage, he said, why don't you release those transcripts of the speeches you're, you're giving? Mm-hmm. He says, I don't have that problem because I wouldn't take a dime from those crooks. Exactly. And I'm like, if that, does, if that in and of itself didn't illustrate the division within the party, I don't know what does. Right. And yet here we are because... Unfortunately, the old Democratic establishment in 2016 shoved Hillary down our throat. They're shoving Biden down our throat now, and it's it's a frustrating game. It's a, it's a civil war within the party, and I think with the establishment, either they know and don't care, or they're really that obtuse to it, they need to wonder or ask themselves, why? Mm-hmm. Why is Bernie getting millions of ways of copper? Uh, uh, of dollars from small donations mm-hmm. from so many people. Of course, we I think we know the answer to that. You know, everything's changing. Right. These young people today, the Gen Gen Z and millennials, they take no short. Right. What I just hope is that 
unlike our generation, Gen X, who still was probably maybe the last of the apathetic generation, right? Who looks at politics and be like, nothing's gonna change, right. everything's gonna stay the same. So why even bother? Mm-hmm. These young people are like, no, no, we're not gonna accept that, right? What, and again, what I hope what they uh, can do is when they do get pushback from the establishment, from the media, that they don't get discouraged, that they keep driving forward. And as they get older, they do not stop. They keep demanding the things that they want mm-hmm. and, and that they don't get settled into apathy. And if they do, then I think the, the, the establishment is further going to crack. Right. And then you're going to start getting more bookers and Bowmans and AOCs coming into it. People that were substitute teachers, delivery truck drivers, you know, bartenders, bartenders, yeah. and be like, you know what, I'm gonna do something, I'm gonna get involved, mm-hmm. and, and it works, right? And you can see that son, that in, and it's working mm-hmm. here and there, you know. And that, that's part of the problem is that the, I think, you know, I'm sort of trying to come to peace with everything of what you're talking about, and I sort of feel like, you know, Bernie was never, he was never destined to be president. Yeah. He was just destined to be the trailblazer, yeah. because he was fighting so much of the Democratic establishment while he was at it. Mm-hmm. You know, the the uh, Pelosi's and the Schumers of the world would have nothing to do with him. He was mm-hmm. just he was too radical, and, and in a lot of ways, he threatened their power base, threatened you know where they get their money from, and you know, I um, other left wingers get upset when I talk about this kind of stuff because it, it you sort of take comfort, I think, sometimes in the fact that the other party's the bad guys and your party's the good guys. And sometimes it's not comforting to hear that your party isn't always the good guy either, you know. But, but I, I my hope is that Bernie, and it seems to be working this way now, is that he's inspiring enough people to get involved in politics that over the course of time that establishment's going to need to change from the inside because eventually those people are going to retire. They're going to have to eventually. Exactly. And my hope is that it'll be the AOCs and the Charles Bookers of the world who can mm-hmm. begin to change things from the inside out and then they can become hopefully the you know, the ones who can help hold the reins on this thing. I, I, that's the only hope that I have because yeah. otherwise it seems like... The trailblazers won't be forgotten. Right. Mm-hmm. What they will do is they will inspire some people to come along and do it better. There was a quote from a person that I really, you know, admired. His name was Michael Eric Dyson. You ever heard oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He had a, had a, 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 a quote that stuck with me about Obama. He said, if Obama... It, uh, being the first black president is equal to Jackie Robinson. I can't wait to see what he makes. Right, that's a good so, one. <laughs> I think that somebody's going to come along, going to adopt everything that Bernie has stood for. It's going to do it better. Mm-hmm. You know, I yeah, I that's a good one. I hadn't thought about it that way, but that sums it up very very nicely. Yeah. And um, you know, and it goes. One of my favorite quotes was. Um, from Frederick Douglass, towards the end of his career, a young man came to him and asked him, said, I want to follow in your footsteps. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have? And Frederick Douglass just said, agitate, agitate, agitate. Don't ever settle. Don't, this is, you know, and we see that now. I mean, that it, it amazes me. I was having a conversation. You, you know George Buss. Yes. Yeah, he was on the podcast, and we were having a conversation the other day about, isn't it amazing that all the way back in, I believe, 1865, there was a civil rights bill on the floor, and the president at the time vetoed it. Yeah. And then after that, it took a hundred years for us to get back to that point. Exactly. You know, we tend to have this view that like, 
life and society slowly progresses at a pace. Never mind that a lot of times it's a roller coaster. It's up and down and it's back and forth. And, you know, the, the simple fact that it's 2020 and some of these discussions we're having nationally that we should have settled a long time ago. Yeah. Like why they're even, you know, it, I mean, that goes in terms of um, race, in terms of diversity, sexual preference. Like why, why are these even things we're talking about right, right now? Like we have so many other things like never mind the fact that global warming is looming like a tsunami that's eventually going to hit us and we're squabbling over stuff that shouldn't even be issues at this point. They shouldn't even be talking points or shouldn't even be articles about them other than, hey, do you remember back when when it sucked? Glad it doesn't anymore. <laughs> you know, that's the only place we should be with this kind of stuff. But um, I don't know if people think that there's going to be just come along some great technological advancement that's going to. Wipe everything and make it make the environment better again, or right? Something. But no, it doesn't work like that. It's science fiction, right? You know, yeah. Gerard Butler's not going to show up at the last minute with, you know, an SD card. He's going to slide into a computer, and <laughs> some device is going to take over and correct everything. Yeah. yeah, the only thing that'll end up saving anybody is when we're like Elon Musk is like, yeah, we're all going to Mars. Yeah. I'm going to get 100 of my rich friends, and we're all going to go to Mars. And good luck to you guys. Yeah, that'll, that'll be the technology that'll save at least some of humanity, I hope. Well, I think the key of it, you know, when it comes to, like you said, dealing with things that we wouldn't think we'd have to be dealing with, of course, that couldn't happen more recently what happened, you know, with uh, issues with uh, police brutality and everything that goes on. But I think the key is just to never settle. Right. Never get complacent. Mm-hmm. You know, these things were going on back in the 90s, Rodney King. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think for a while, people started just, you know, accepting it as, you know, that's just how, you know, they are. Mm-hmm. You know, certain police are, ain't nothing you can do about it. But once beatings start turning to killing. Right. That's where, that's where we'll start waking people up. Well, and it's just like we were talking earlier, it's a social media thing. You know, these things are getting filmed now. Yeah. Anytime one of these happened, it's the odds are extremely high that somebody across the street has a cell phone. Yeah. Extremely high. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of the situation sort of lies to you mm-hmm. and sort of makes you think that this is something that's new. Mm-hmm. No, the technology's new. No. Yeah, because a couple of years back, 2008, 2007, somebody would send up a tweet about something and then that would go get spread like wildfire like wait a minute Deshaun got beat up by, by a cop and then it's like oh what what and, it's like, and, mm-hmm. then, and then now you don't have to just you know type it now you can tape it you're right you know? yeah and it's it which leads you to believe how often was this going on even back through the 30s 40s 50s 60s 70s 80s 90s and especially when the only official word on it is the word that the police officers report as to what happened right. How many of these things, I mean, you could literally say there were thousands of them that were probably just lost in the fold, lost in the gears of history. And I think we have no idea. No. We have no idea. Yeah. Well, and God, I think, because we were, we were still kids when Rodney King happened. Yeah. And, and the L.A. riots happened. And yet, it's one of those things that I sort of feel like we need to find a way to come together and deal with this. Because yeah. if that happened all the way back then and this is happening now, then this means this is, this is a recurring issue. Mm-hmm. This isn't something that if, you know, you get to some of these people who are anti-BLM and whatnot who, yeah. who just want to say, oh, well, 
you know, they just need to shut up and blah, 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 blah. And more white people get killed. You know, all the yeah. bullshit. Yeah. Um, listen, if, if your desire is to wish this whole thing to just go away, mm-hmm. it might, but it will come back. It will yeah. bubble up again. And it seems like every time it bubbles up, it's got more energy behind it for good and for bad. Mm-hmm. I think either one is good. Yeah. I'm like, whatever, you know, um, I'm not, I, I feel bad when I wa- was watching some of the protests, especially some of the ones that turned into riots. It felt like, you know, I feel bad for anybody out there who scraped together all their savings to start a restaurant right. and it got destroyed. I feel bad for those people. The targets of the world, I could care less. Yeah, there, every every piece of merchandise in those targets is insured. Right. The building is insured. Yeah. Only it'll only be a matter if cor- if the corporate headquarters decides if it's whether or not it's worth it to rebuild. That's right. All, not, all it matters to. And I think what what people are missing, and I can't remember the lady that said it well, where where the statement come up is why are they doing that to their own neighborhood? Well, there's something to to the word own mm-hmm. because in those neighborhoods, what do they own? Right. Most of most people, the predominantly black communities, are renting. Mm-hmm. They don't own the homes, the businesses. They don't own them. Right. So when they look around, it's like, none of this is mine. Right. None of this is helping me. You know. Mm-hmm. So why should I care if it gets burned down? Right. Yeah. Well, especially in some of those neighborhoods where it seems like, un- unfortunately, a lot of times the the civil way, and by civil I mean the civil organization to deal mm-hmm. with it, is to either basically create barricades of some fashion mm-hmm. to keep those people within that area yeah. or gentrify it, right. which either way is like, you know, and I, I, I get in, I, you probably feel the same way too. I sort of, I'm 100% behind the defund the police campaign. Right. I just wish it had a different title because that, that leads people to think that we just want to completely get rid of the police force and that, that's not no, it at that's all. That's not it at all, no. But if you look at the history of, as you know, you're you're in this situation where if you go all the way back to the beginning, so you go and get a race of people from another country, and you bring them here, and you say, "Cool, you're our labor force now. Right. You don't get paid. You can't. You can get married if you want, but we might sell your spouse. We haven't decided yet. Right. Um, it's going to depend on what's profitable next quarter. Um, and then eventually, you say, "Okay, well, we fought a war to keep you enslaved, and we lost. So you're free now." But you better mind yourself, you know, <laughs> yeah. you better don't step out of line, do what you're told. No, you're not allowed to own a house there. No, you better not open a business there. That's another hot button issue, isn't it? Oh, big you know, time. The whole, the whole Confederate uh, oh, yeah. iconography. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. And you eventually progress to the point where it's like you have people who are descended from this, who are living in these communities, and you're underfunding their schools, you're underfunding their neighborhoods. And so as a result of that, crime progressively gets worse and your your way to deal with it is just continue to up the police budget at that point in time you've got cancer and you're just putting bigger and more expensive band-aids on it every year rather than get and that's why i'm a fan of defund the police is like rather than having these huge bloated budgets to the point where we basically have a paramilitary force in the street let's get down to brass tacks and figure out what's the problem you know where is it that we can help alleviate these things so we're not constantly just rolling in guns deep and saying knock it off right and this the whole thing what i think a lot of people don't don't understand if this has been a bill mm-hmm. you know we're getting back to, to what was it about a week or so ago where they were talking about 
Trump going in to Tulsa. Yeah. On Juneteenth. Yeah. And what what the whole I think what what is it almost like, is it a hundred years this year mm-hmm. since nineteen twenty? Yeah. And what I think people really don't get, what is the aftermath of that? I mean, what three hundred people killed, men, women, and children. Mm-hmm. Uh, property damage that would be more than all of the riots, you know, combined to right. this day. Mm-hmm. But what I think they are missing is the psychology of it. Yeah. You're an African American. It's nineteen twenty. Feel like you're finally moving away from the stigma of slavery. Everything's good, doing good. You're building up an economy. You're employing your own people. You're building wealth, and then it's all taken away. Mm-hmm. It's all gone. So, what does that say to other parts of the country or in the African American community? Well, if I try to build something up, what if they come along and they take and they tear it down and destroy everything, like in Tulsa? Mm-hmm. So. When people say, well, you know, why can't they do better and build up their communities? It's been a long stigma mm-hmm. of of not be of a being worried that you're going to be able to that, that that this is going to happen again. Mm-hmm. And and as time goes by, and those chances of building up generational wealth go away, this is what you're stuck with. Yeah. And then, then of course, it gets back to these with a lot of crime and then over policing but that's where we are today mm-hmm. well and especially in Tulsa because that was when that happened that wasn't that wasn't a ghetto that got hit that no. was an upper middle class no, it was like, black neighborhood it was like equivalent to Harlem right yeah you know, it was so, in really yeah. really good shape and mm-hmm. over something little small and it wasn't just a group of hooligans like the local police no. department was involved with these people going in there and rioting and burning and shooting and I don't know if you watched the HBO series uh, from last year, Watchmen. I, I haven't had HBO. I just started getting HBO Max. Oh, okay. So there's a lot of things I want to watch. I want to watch Watchmen, Westworld, and all that stuff. Okay. So. Well, the of, of course, it's a sequel to the storyline of Watchmen. Mm-hmm. Um, it runs more off the graphic novel by Alan Moore than it does the movie. But one of the big nexus points is sort of the origins for everything that happens in that show is that riot in Tulsa wow. in 1920. And it's because it's HBO and because it's Watchmen, it's extremely graphic. Mm-hmm. You know, it literally shows a guy with, you know, part of it is a guy with his kids trying to get through the streets while all this is going on. And he's a veteran. He's still wearing his World War One uniform, mm-hmm. you know, just trying to. And you're like, and there's. You know, they've got a biplane that's flying overhead, dropping Molotov cocktails on businesses. And it's just like, and I, like I had, I had heard about the Tulsa riots. I had known about them historically speaking, but after I saw that, I had to think to myself, was it, was it, I mean, I knew it was bad, but was it that bad? Started researching. Yeah, it was. It was was really bad. You know? Oh, Lord. The things you, uh. Learn from series from comic books, right? <laughs> you know, and I have to credit, I have to credit you. You was the one that got me into comic books. Really? Yeah. Up until the point where I, when I came over to see your collections, I never really owned a comic book. Oh, really? And then, then afterwards, you know, I would, you know, what little time I had, or I would try to, you know, spend a few hours in a bookstore and just start reading <laughs> stuff that I couldn't, couldn't buy or something like that. I'd get one or two every now and then, whatever I could afford. Yeah. But yeah. It's a bad addiction, especially now. Yeah. You know, their their prices are such that I actually 
um, for a long time, I was still I was still getting comics. And I want to say it was two years ago I finally stopped mm-hmm. because I just honestly I had gotten to the point where um, yeah I just didn't have time. And yeah. you know the closest actual like legit comic book store to us here is either in Rockford or in Dixon. Yeah. And like once a month I was going down to Dixon and you know then you drop fifty, sixty, seventy bucks on mm-hmm. you know all the books that I had them pulling for me, and then I wasn't having time to read them. And I don't know if it was an age thing. Eventually you get to the point where I understand storylines have to progress, but when it slowly gets to the point where the heroes from your childhood don't look like those heroes anymore. Mm -hmm. And purely, purely just because of the fact that they, you know, it's comic books. So they're always doing the thing. They have to quote unquote, kill off a character and someone else takes over the mantle. And, you know, some of them I really, really enjoyed. I was still really into the, but you know, I'd gotten to the point where I was following writers more than I was characters. And, Brian Michael Bendis is one of my favorite ones. Did you ever see um, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse? Yes. That, really enjoyed that. That was all him. That was oh, 100% wow. him. He um, he had began, I think it was in 2001, Marvel came up with this idea of starting a comic book line that could take place in its own separate universe. Mm-hmm. That way, you know, like Spider-Man, the Avengers, X-Men, Fantastic Four, they could begin to tell those stories from ground zero. And build it all up in its own separate universe for con- continuity issues. And Brian Michael Bendis started writing. He was handed the job of Ultimate Spider-Man, and he wrote Ultimate Spider-Man. I would say from issue one all the way through issue like one twenty. But he was the one who created the character of Miles Morales. And you know, I give credit to Marvel. One of the things he was doing. He's he's a Jewish American by birth. Mm-hmm. Um, I follow him on several social media platforms. And him and his wife were unable to have children, so they began adopting, and they ended up, I, I want to say, with four children, um, two of them who are African descent and two of them are Latino descent. Yeah. And, you know, it, he and, like, a lot of people, you know, in Marvel Comics and a lot of those started in, like, the 60s, everything was Wonder Bread, man. Right. Everything was white. Everything was white. And, yeah, you know, that progresses to this point, and he eventually got to the point where he talked to the editors about creating a new Spider-Man who was part black and part Hispanic. And they 100% gave him their blessing, like, hey, do whatever you want to do. So he actually created the Miles Morales character, and then within that comic book, killed Peter Parker. Yeah. Which was like, you can't imagine, you know, doing that'd be like killing off Tony Stark or something, which, I mean, they did in the movies. But It's like this video game we're talking about. Right. It's been done before. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's been done before. Well, and it was, it was long overdue, you yeah. know, especially in the world of, you know, Marvel Comics. And Marvel's been, you know, they've been, they've been really, really good yeah, about that. They... they he actually he left a few years ago to go to DC, mm-hmm. only because he had been with Marvel for over twenty years, and yeah. you just get to the point where you've written everything you can write for those characters. That and you know he wanted. I think he's writing Superman now. And you have to think that they're all just one big community, and everybody knows everybody. Oh, whether it's DC or Marvel. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah, the Marvel versus D thing, DC thing is for the fans and the people yeah. in the boardrooms, not for the writers and exactly. artists. They don't care. They're just they're nerds having fun. Mm-hmm. But he also created the. Um, the female Black Iron Man before, yeah, he, Williams. Yeah, Williams. yep. Yeah. Created her and a lot of the, a lot of those other major changes he made in those books just before he left. And mm-hmm. so, and people don't really—he's kind of the unsung hero. A lot of the MCU movies are written after his storylines that he wrote in the comics. So, I'm anxious to see what they're going to do with Jane Foster. Or... Yeah, so am I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's be well, especially since it sounds like Chris Hemsworth's not going to be around. He's off with the Guardians of the Galaxy now. Uh-huh. So. I mean, I, they definitely did that in the comic book, but at the time they did it in the comic book, Thor was in this, like, 
he didn't have his hammer. He had been shamed and wasn't worthy and was actually exiled from Asgard at the time when Jane Foster took over. So it kind of created this power void for him, for her to just sort of step in and, you know, take over the mantle. But either way, the MCU hasn't let me down yet. No. I've, no. And it's been fun, really, to view these things as an adult, you know, as opposed to when you were a kid. You start learning more about the writers and things, like learning about how uh, uh, how uh, Magneto and, and Professor X are based off of Martin Luther King and, and Malcolm X. Yeah, that was so cool. To yeah, about. yeah. And you know, I was probably like you. I was a kid when I was reading X Men, and I loved X Men. It was always my favorite comic. Um, I th- I think from the time I was like seven or eight years old, Wolverine was always my favorite character. It wasn't until you become older and you become a little bit more socially aware yeah. of sort of like, oh, okay, it started in the 60s and the the metaphor for racism and the civil rights. And um, they, then when you learn that, that, that's what they were yeah. based off of. And, you know, it was kind of one of the, I remember being a kid and being like, well, Professor, Professor X is good and Magneto is bad. Mm-hmm. Of course, it didn't help the fact in the comics that it was the evil brotherhood of mutants that Magneto was leading. That's when, good for selling toys. Right, it but is. For the writers, it's, it's always a little bit more, yeah. more nuanced to it. it one good, yeah. good good, way to put it. And I got older and I looked at it and I kind of said, you know, that actually makes, makes a lot. Because the, the older I get, you know, you're sort of like, you know, I don't think Magneto's that bad of a guy. No. He's just, the, the guy's been through some shit. Yeah. And he's All got. Holocaust survivor. Yeah, he's got kind of a hardcore view about this thing. And then, yeah, I was. Learned about how the that was kind of like the difference of philosophy between, you know, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, and that ultimately they both wanted the same goal. They yeah. wanted, you know, both Professor X and Magneto wanted mutants to be able to live and thrive and not be threatened. They just had both very, very different ways of getting to that goal. You talked about earlier about how, you know, as up and coming and different storylines go, how they're going characters become unrecognizable how do you think that they can continue someone like magneto as we move further and further away from the whole original plot point of being a holocaust survivor what can they do with him that could be in equivalent yeah it makes you wonder doesn't it yeah. you know marvel's always had that problem where they're always dealing with a sliding scale you know originally the captain america comics existed in the 1940s and then when Avengers started in the 1960s, it was like, well, he'd only been frozen for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So at the time, in the comic, they didn't play a lot with the, oh, this is all you missed out on. Now we're getting to the point where we have to say he was frozen for over 70 years. Yeah. And now he's waking up, well, what's the storyline going to be 50 years from now? Exactly. <laughs> you know, that he was asleep for a century and is now waking up. And <clears throat> I don't know, but you're, you're absolutely right. I don't know. You know, they'd almost have to change the story to him being like, a POW during the Vietnam War, Something you know, like, like his parents were missionaries over there and Kosovo. Yeah, that's that's yeah. that's not a bad one either, especially since yeah. I was in Yugoslavia right before all that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd think that would occur to me first, but yeah. yeah, you would have to. Yeah, in some way, they're always finding ways to mod some of those stories, which you kind of have to to give it more of a. Because even then, the Holocaust thing, they didn't get into that until like twenty years after X Men had started. Right. Because when it started, there was just sort of the. You know, comic books were a little bit more PG rated and a lot more black and white in terms of like, this is good, this is bad, they fight each other. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it wasn't until the 80s that you got into that. And that's sort of the interesting thing about comic book writing is everybody yeah. who started writing comic books back in the 60s did it because 
to put it simply, they were failed writers. Right. They were people who couldn't make it writing novels. They couldn't make it writing movies. And so by default, they fell into the comic book world who would pay them a couple bucks to write scripts here and there. Um, they did enough of a good job and inspired enough people that the people who came along, people like the Chris Claremonts and the Brubakers who came along afterwards, were people who are good enough to be novelists and movie writers, right. but were so inspired by comics as a kid that they, would, they grew up wanting to write comics rather right. than it being... A default thing and so that's why gosh you you pick up any marvel comic from the 70s and read it compared to a marvel comic book today and it's it's literally the difference between pulling a book off the kid's shelf you know at a, in a kindergarten classroom versus you know yeah. something you would you would pick up today i mean even the complex if you've read any of the alan moore stuff like watchmen or v for vendetta and it's extremely deep and rich and really gets behind the characters a lot of motivations the kind of stuff like if you were to give me a comic book from the 1960s like one of the original x-men i wouldn't have a problem giving it you know in my eight-year-old to read mm -hmm. um some of the x-men comics today eh, might get a little dicey on that yeah. because the content gets a lot lot heavier not in terms of like sexually explicit but just in terms mm -hmm. of violence and the heaviness right. behind the issues yeah, that they're dealing yeah. with and yeah yeah, yeah drug use right now it's something that can be mm -hmm. and boy is it ironic that these writers who back then wasn't good enough to write for movies and books who's propping up the entire movie industry right yeah <laughs> who was keeping it alive yep. that, that yeah Material based on those bad writers right <laughs> and i gotta i always love the community because um having gone to several comic cons mm -hmm. for the most part you're still going to get some there but for the most part the writers and the artists who do those comics are some of the most unpretentious people in the world yeah because comic books come out and their names on them. Majority of people don't know who they look like. Yeah. They never have to deal with paparazzi. They get up in the morning. They still got to go to the gas station on the way to work. There's still some jerk who cuts them off in the street. It's only those few times a year when they go to a Comic-Con and are treated like rock stars. Right. And so they can actually enjoy it and not be irritated by it. There was this two buddies, Craig Kyle and Chris Yost, um, who had been buddies for a long time. And they co-write everything together. Mm -hmm. They actually wrote Thor Ragnarok, if oh. you saw that movie. Yeah, I saw that one. But they they've, liked it, yeah. they've written a lot of animated shows. They've also written a lot of comic books. And it was several years ago, me and my buddy Nick, we were at Comic-Con in Chicago. Um, it was the C2E2 at the McCormick, McCormick Place. Mm -hmm. And we're going around, and, you know, all the artists and people, there, they're there in their booths and everything else like that. And you get the list ahead of time before you go who all is going to be there. So you know what comic books to bring to get signed. And uh, we kind of get back towards the edge of the big hall where there's not a lot of people around. And we see these two. We're just standing there talking, organizing our backpacks. And we see these two guys walking. We both look over and we're like, that's Craig Kyle and Chris Yost, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. And they weren't listed as being there. So we just went over to them and approached them like, hey, are you, are, are you Craig Kyle and Chris Yost? They're like, yeah, 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 we are. They weren't paid to be there. They weren't billed to be there. They just had the weekend off. They live in New York. Like, hey, you want to hop a flight and go to Chicago and go to Comic-Con? Yeah, sure. We must have stood there for an hour and just BSed with them. Right. You know, about this different storyline they did and this one. I think at the time they were both writing X-Force. Um, and how did you treat this character and what made you decide to do this? And they were both like, I mean, they were like two guys you'd be sitting at a bar with. They were just like, oh, yeah, well, you know. And and that was one of the, like, you could never in a million years do that with like Robert Downey Jr. Right. Or Leonardo DiCaprio. You know, as much as they may be cool people to their friends, mm -hmm. they're so used to being hounded by huge paparazzi that they almost kind of put those walls up. 
And, you know, some people, like, uh, you know, kind of go to those conventions like Mark Hamill or something, and they'd be like, oh, $90 for an autograph. <laughs> you, know, like, you know, you know, that's, but, you know, I tell them, they earned it. They earned it. So, yeah. You know, so if you need to get a chance to run into some people like that, you know, that's an extra special treat. Yeah, take take advantage of it, I tell them. Yeah. I haven't been to one in years now, but, um, mm-hmm. yeah, they're a lot of fun. You, you don't really... I, I, that's one of the things that I sort of love about the nerd community yeah. is that it's not it's not one hundred percent, but it feels like in a lot of ways it sort of transcends a lot of social problems we have in it society. Does. It does. Your average nerd doesn't care, no. you know, and that's kind of it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's a little bit of the comeuppance that both of the parties are going to have to deal with is that the generations that are coming behind them don't care about the things they care about. Yeah, those aren't the kind of issues that are going to divide us and get us whipped into a frenzy. We just more look at it as you know this is really pathetic. Why, why are you even making a big deal out of this? So, yeah, it's at a point now where almost everybody's a nerd in some way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Ever since the whole Harry Potter thing, you know, it just now it's just every, everybody's in. What was it? There's something about J.K. Rowling and transphobia or something. Or? Oh yes, there was something that had to do with. I think that was like late last year, like around December. She was supporting somebody. I can't think of what her name was. That was. Had some sort of got in trouble for saying something transphobic. Oh, something like that. Uh-oh. So <laughs> I'm not sure the cancel button has been hit on her yet. Right. But it got dang near close. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> hovering right over yeah. the right over yeah. the. Well, it's so hard to reverse course on some of those things, you yeah. know. And some people they get so hardcore into something, and then as soon as you know, it becomes real easy to just. You know, we see this, this sort of like, I don't know what the technical term is, like cognitive dissonance or, yeah. you know, you see that a lot with Trump supporters where it's like no matter how many times you bring up stuff that he's done or said, they're like, oh, well, and, you know, don't think for a left that the left's immune to that. I've had no. that before. No. We'll, we'll, we'll be discussing people who support Trump. And there's a difference between people who, you know, sort of support Trump or I, I will say this, people who supported Trump. Yeah. in 2016 who today have sort of changed their opinion on that yeah. Yeah. and those kind of people I refuse to beat over the head no. like good for no. you you yeah. shouldn't be beaten off the head for changing your mind based upon new information good for you mm-hmm. but there's still the people who like are still ardently wanting no, there's literally nothing you could say that could steer them he could mm-hmm. he could shoot a newborn baby in the middle of Times Square and they would still be like well the baby did something there must yeah. have been there must have been must have been national security there must have been I... a good reason have never seen anything like that with a Republican candidate before. That's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. Oh. It wasn't that much further from No. From what I understand, Reagan was up there, but not to this level. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, there's still people today who are the old school Reaganites who, you know. um, Yeah, it's really like a a weird cult of personality thing that just Mm -hmm. is so bizarre right now. And I can't, you know, the only thing that I can relate it to um, as I remember this, uh, I, I want to say it was a, an episode of last week tonight with John Oliver. I don't know if you're into that. Oh yeah. yeah. I, I was just watching his, uh, uh, video on the Confederacy. Oh, okay. The, uh, this morning. Okay. Uh, that he had where, about what, I love how he ended it, where he ended with Stephen Colbert instead of, in Charleston, instead of having a Confederate statue, why don't you have a statue of King Stephen Colbert? There's right. Stephen Colbert. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. yeah. But he was doing a bit about the NRA. And, um, and as I will freely admit here on the podcast, I at one point in time was a member of the NRA. Yeah. And the fact that I was a member of the NRA shows you 
how good their propaganda machine is. Yeah. Because, and Steve, it, um, John Oliver was talking about, he summed it up perfectly. He's like, what makes the NRA so pervasive and so accomplished at what they do is the simple fact that everything they have is surrounded by one simple notion, and that's the word no. Right. In any way, shape, or form, no. We're not dealing with nuance. We're not dealing with debate. We're not dealing with nuance. It's just no. So all they need to do is anytime any kind of bill comes up anywhere in the country, they just put they just hit the button to their supporters and say, go there and tell them no. Mm-hmm. And thousands, if not millions of people go and say no. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's it, it, it that sort of prevailed into the whole, you know, I want to say Trump thing, because that's yeah. like the, the core of his sort of support. Their answer is just no. Exactly. You know, they're. Exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, I don't know if they'll come out and admit it, but so much of their political stance revolves around just sticking it to the libs. Exactly. You know, like it's a, it's a sports yeah a thing. Yeah. You know, it's the it's the opposite team. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them you can break in, you can Mike can break the glass when you start getting them to think a little bit. You know, at first, ah, oh, Medicare for all that socialism stuff, having the government pay for everything. Ugh, can't stand it. Okay, wait a minute. You mean I don't have to pay? Three or four hundred dollars a month in premium. Mm-hmm. I don't have to pay the, these many deductibles. I don't have to spend twenty forty bucks in a copay. Right. And I forget it. It's still, it's still, it's still like those crazy liberals. Right. Like, you know, <laughs> it's like you almost you can almost get them. You know. Yeah. And probably if Trump was to if Trump was to say yeah let's do Medicare for all, I bet you'd have to oh be like oh my god love it. Love yeah. it. great idea oh great idea you'd never see a U-turn so fast in your life exactly. all of a sudden they'd be like well we like Trump's Medicare for all yeah, yeah. what's the difference I don't know <laughs> but yeah, yeah you're yeah. Uh, you nailed well that's kind of the funny thing is that there's in the whole I mean it goes back to the Cold War the whole yeah. anti-communism anti-socialism thing mm-hmm. which I think is kind of ridiculous to begin with. I mean, there every country, including the United States, is some percentage of socialist. Yeah. I mean, when you define a socialist program as anything that's funded by taxpayers for the benefit of all society. Mm-hmm. So your school systems are socialist. Yep. Your fire department is socialist. Police your highway department, department, police department. Yeah. And so, so if you're really anti-socialist, why are you against defund the police? Because isn't that a socialist program? I go. mean, you know, so... But it becomes real easy to just say... You know, and I, I've heard this from, unfortunately, from some people who, like, they refuse to vote for Bernie or even support Bernie because they feel like at his core, he's just a communist agent. And it's just, you know, he's just sort of... Communism as under Stalin and when it was dead. Right. It really is. Yeah. And again, it's just people really got to understand that what was then is different compared to what is now. Right. You know? There's communism mixed with totalitarianism mm-hmm. and authoritarianism. You know, you can have socialism without any of that. Right. It can all be done by the people, and, and when it's done right, mm-hmm. that's how it's supposed to work the best. Is where the people decide. Right. The people only allow themselves to be ruled by an authoritarian if they allow it. Mm-hmm. They don't allow it. It, it doesn't, doesn't exist. happen. Yeah. Right. Well, and. You know, you, you always start to raise raise yours when you bring up Karl Marx. Um, if, if anybody goes and actually reads the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx, and by the way, Karl Marx never intended Stalinism. No. 
He never intended Leninism. He never intended any of that. When you read his stuff, basically, he half the time he was diagnosing the problems with capitalism. Mm -hmm. And every single time he was 100% right. His ultimate solution to that was communism, which we know, which is good on paper. Mm -hmm. We know now isn't good because it concentrates too much power over too many people in one spot. So when you're talking about socialism, you're basically saying like, okay, we're still admitting that there are these problems with with capitalism. Mm -hmm. Here's our way of dealing with them that isn't communism, that isn't taking all of the power and putting in the hands of two or three people at the top Mm -hmm. who from there can dictate control over everything and turn it into Stalinism to it, you know, turn it into the USSR or, you know, any of those other things. So I hope we get it figured out. Yeah. You know, as a nation, we got a long way to go and it's amazing how, um, and I hope we get it figured out before we hit another great depression. Right. Because if, if there's anything that is going to shift the pendulum, that could be it. Where there's just so much at the top and so little, Mm-hmm. For everyone else, that people would be willing to be like, screw it. <laughs> you know, well, you're absolutely- give me socialism, give me communism, give me something where I can get a job again. Right. You know? Well, unlike now, we're in this position where it's, you know, unemployment is as higher than it was during the Great Depression, mm-hmm. and yet the top wealthiest percentage has seen their profits absolutely balloon. I know that Jeff Bezos made four hundred fifty-six billion since Corona started. And then one of the economists I was reading in our column was basically telling me it was the biggest wealth transfer in history. It was just, yeah. it was like a vacuum cleaner to the average everyday American just getting sucked up all the way to the top of the penthouse. Mm-hmm. Eventually, we're going to have to have, you know, we're going to have to have a comeuppance about that too, because as long as that continues, and that was one of the things that, you know, Karl Marx talked about in Communist Manifesto, is it was, you know, is what he called end stage capitalism, that eventually. Yeah. The relentless drive for profits was going to drive it to the position where the average everyday person couldn't afford to buy the products that capitalism was trying to peddle them. And because of that, jobs begin to collapse. The capitalists freak out over protecting their profits. And and we're slowly seeing all that decay. It's all happening right now. Mm -hmm. You know, Karl Marx was alive. He'd just be like standing on a pulpit saying, I told you, bro. I I told you this is what was going to happen. You know, know, all your small businesses are closing mm -hmm. and all you have left is Amazon and Walmart. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's got, and Walmart in and of itself just amazes the crap out of me. I read somewhere that they're like the, the Walton family, their personal wealth grows by like $80 million a day, Mm -hmm. a day. They make like something like $80,000 an hour. It's just, I mean, I hope they don't think Bezos is not going after them next. Right. Yeah. Cause I've already, I just saw the uh, other day. Amazon has their own shopping channel now. Oh, do they really? Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> so, <laughs> so not only can you order online, if you want to watch it on TV now, and, they, and they're slick with it, they got a bunch of young people. Oh, yeah. Instead of the, instead of, what are the usually old middle-aged people that the regular shopping channels have. Right. Yeah, they yeah. want to control everything. Well, it's and just... They'll do brick and mortar stores that is going to go up against Walmart next. Right. Well, isn't that the crazy thing that like Amazon grows like a huge, a huge giant off of the internet and puts all these brick and mortar stores out of business, and mm-hmm. the next stage of their operation is building brick, brick and mortar. mortar you yeah, know. To, <laughs> yeah. Well, good. There's empty storefronts they can fill that have been sitting there forever. That's insane. Well, it's just like if you look at American history, that's just like the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers going right. at it. You know, it's this age old tale of. You know, you gotta horizontally integrate your entire business to take over all to in the relentless pursuit of 
higher, higher, bigger, more, you know. Gosh, I hope. And then that's one of the things I remember when uh, David Soul, who was, the, who was on the podcast, and he worked for the Rockford field office for Bernie Sanders, mm-hmm. was one of the things that we were exactly talking about is I said, you know, capitalism in and of itself isn't inherently bad. Yeah. It just doesn't care. You know, it exists to make money, and because of that, it can drive a lot of innovation, a lot of technological innovation, yeah. a lot of artistic innovation. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it doesn't care. It doesn't have morals. Mm-hmm. Um, it will leave a child starving in the gutter if it can save five cents on giving it bread. That's exactly. that's just the nature of the beast. And that's a shame because the, what drives it is the worker. Right. They are, it used to be a time when the worker was considered the biggest asset. Right, yeah. You know, creativity is what helps create, bring them more wealth. Mm-hmm. So any, when you stifle that. Right. You know. Right. Well, you know, and it's sad that, like, we're good with capitalism, but at the end of the day, you need to have some level of restraint on it. You need to have a mechanism in play, which is what government's supposed to do. Right. You know, we go all the way back to when Teddy Roosevelt, you know, through if it went, I don't know if you went through this in college, but when Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle about the meatpacking industry in Chicago and how horrible the working conditions was. And Teddy Roosevelt read it and just completely lost it, you know, and threatened to take over their businesses if they didn't, you know. And, and it's because of stuff like that that now we have laws like OSHA and overtime and yeah. minimum wage. And of course, minimum wage didn't come until the 30s. But, um, but now we're sort of in this position where it's like, yeah, the government is supposed to be the stopgap. The government's supposed to be what sort of mediates between the people and the capitalism but when you know the capitalists the top capitalists in the country are giving millions of dollars to the government individually mm-hmm. as politicians they kind of start wavering in support of their job and i think going all the way back to where we started that's part of the problem we're having with some of the parties right now even the democratic parties they're taking money from these people and just you know it's easy to say well it's not that bad right. you know you, you begin to gray area your morals a little bit you know for the sake of getting reelected in your own personal pocketbook it's i hope we figure it out that, i really, really really do that was always the biggest struggle i had as a con as a college student mm-hmm. when i when i get when i go away from my uh history courses sociology courses and everything that i learned there and then i have to go to economics mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and the and the whole different philosophy about everything and i I just totally checked out when I heard about the lack of cream. Yeah. (laughs) No, no. And and it's just, just seems like two different levels. We had to learn it though. Mm -hmm. Still had to learn it. Yeah. Well-rounded student, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's the same when I was at NIU. Not only did I have to take intro to economics, I had to take macro, macro and micro, two different classes. And, I don't know. They were one of those classes that looking back on it, I'm glad I learned all that. I hated it so much when I was in it because it was so like, oh my God, it's so mind-numbingly boring and complex all at the same time. It's just, hmm. my hat's off to them. Anybody who does that stuff and completely fully understands it, it's good for them. I don't know. And that's another thing that I think has to be reversed. We have to start propping up the value of a college education. Mm -hmm. Because I know for a fact if it wasn't for college and what I learned in some of those remedial college prep writing courses, I wouldn't be able to be A's and be a grad student. Yeah. 
because I learned so much from teachers that were so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, the person that I still keep in contact with uh, at Higher Than That, his name is Sam Fiorenta. Okay. Great, excellent writing teacher. Learned mm-hmm. so much from him. And yeah, he, he did some of those old 90 courses all the way up into the regular college courses that transferred and just being able, and, and that's the kind of thing that is valuable getting a college education is those people that will help you do more than what you thought you Oh, yeah, absolutely. So hopefully that's people start just not consider college as just utilitarian. It's just something to get a job. Right. And I've often, gosh, I have felt this way for the longest time, and I'm sure you were this way too, the amount of times in college that I ended up far more inspired and motivated by a professor than I did the subject matter. Yeah. There were times I went into a class that I was very, very, very much looking forward to. Mm-hmm. And the professor completely killed my desire to yeah. be into that. And then vice versa. There were times I'm like, oh, God, i got to take this dumb class. Mm-hmm. And the professor ended up so amazing mm-hmm. that I had to take more classes in that subject because then I'm inspired and interested and motivated. And mm-hmm. I... I I think that goes goes back to a lot of bigger stuff we were saying, I, and I even think this goes to education in general. Yeah. I think the rate at which we deal, value, and fund education in this country is atrocious. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely atrocious. You know, I, I've told this to people before, and they probably think I'm crazy, but if you know something happened and tomorrow I was emperor of the country and had the infinity stones or something like that, I'd snap my fingers and overnight give every school in the country triple the budget. Yeah. Just like that. Just yeah. like that. That's... That's the whole future. That's that's the whole investment, you know, and it's sort of like in this country, we spend so much money on the military, so much money. I sort of metaphorically related to being in a household and you've got a child who is going to school and their book bag is ripped and their school books are in the best shape. And yet dad's like, well, that's too bad. We're just going to have to deal with it. I've got to go to the store and buy another gun just in case. Mm -hmm. Well, you've already got a thousand guns down in the basement. Yeah, but I'm going to need another one just in case. And in the meantime, the kid's like, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm diabetic and I'm out of insulin. Mm, You're going to have to make it till next paycheck. I got to go get that gun. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, in the country, that's that's where we're at right now. And it's like education 100% because that's, that, that's the future. That's, that's everything. And, you know, we, we seem to be like, we're just, it seems like slowly over the course of time we're defunding and devaluing the importance yeah. of education and teachers and you know and you know me not paying them what they're worth right not even close yeah. not even close and this may be radical i don't know but i sort of feel like a teacher even a high school teacher even a kindergarten teacher first year out of college should base maybe like seventy thousand dollars and then build up after that because when you, like, gosh, I couldn't believe it. Well, I remember when I was in high school and we had a, I remember I had a math teacher. It was her first year teaching out of college and she had to waitress at night on weekends just to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. And you're like, how do you expect her to come in the next day refreshed and motivated and ready to engage her students when she's exhausted because she had to stay up well past midnight making tips just to be able to pay her rent? Exactly. Like, that's, to me, that's insane. That's completely not prioritizing what's important. And for that person. You know, make it easier for them, you know, flexible hours, you know, for being able to come in and learn at a, at a particular pace. Maybe not, you know, give them a couple more extra weeks than eight, you right. know, eight weeks or ten weeks or something to, mm-hmm. to get, get it done. And that can do a world of good right. for a student like that. Mm-hmm. You know? 
Well, and I seem to think, I don't know how crazy of a theory this is, but I've been thinking about this a lot lately. But if you were to, like we're here in Freeport, mm-hmm. and you went to Freeport High School. Yeah. What if we were to have the money to the point where we could take Freeport High School and that entire area where Freeport High School is and the junior high school across the street and basically turn that into more of like, um, almost more like the feel of like a college campus. And I would even get to the point where I would say, from six o'clock in the morning until eleven o'clock at night, the library is open, the cafeteria is open, the gymnasiums are open. There's tutors available. There's computer labs that are available. And instead of making it just a, your child comes here from eight fifteen to three fifteen every day, except for holidays, weekends, in the summer, make it the center of the community. Exactly. Make it a part of something that like that way any kid that's out there that's like you know if, if they're if they're in a rough situation and they don't they really don't want to go home when school gets over you can stay right. shoot hoops with your friends go to the library play video games read some stuff there's food in the cafeteria if you're hungry you know the it, and it's not like uh, well you know you only have so much money on your lunch account like no if you you want a tray of food here's a tray of food yeah. there's there first of all there's absolutely no reason why financially we can't do that in this no, country it is we are the, the richest country in the world, and there are other countries that do it without a problem and don't exactly. even see an issue over it. And I think maybe as a kind of like a happy accident, I think maybe COVID-19 might force some people into thinking of that. Mm-hmm. But because if you have, like I said, kind of having everybody come in from 8.15 to 3.15, you know, have some people come in from 6 to 8, mm-hmm. 10 to 11, Something like that. Get yeah. those class classes from twenty to six. Yeah. And and and, and, and a flexible schedule, mm-hmm. you know, for both the students and the parents, you know, you know, whatever you could be, however that could work. And yeah, I think that would be a great idea. I think so too. Yeah. COVID's kind of teaching us a lot. It is. You know, yeah. for good and it's good. It's kind of like a lot of social upheaval things. It's for good and bad. Mm-hmm. You know, but gosh, I was. You know, kids are, they're just sort of the product of their environment. And they're almost like Teflon when they're young. Like, stuff just doesn't get to them. And there are a lot of times with with everything that was going on with COVID and everything that, you know, I I know that as a parent, like, my anxiety was through the roof. And and to kids, they're just like, you know, and I was having a conversation with my oldest, who's 17, Alec, that I'm like, I'm like, I, I realize that the gravity of everything right now isn't hitting you, but this is one of those things that, your kids and grandkids will ask you about you know this is like the 1960s all over again where there's so much upheaval and so many things that are happening it's going to be hopefully a major turning point in history for a lot of good things Mm -hmm. you know um because it was you know we were sort of lucky being gen xers where we sort of like came up into life where things were relatively stable yeah there wasn't a lot of change or upheaval things just went along their path and then for the longest time the biggest tragedy we dealt with was the challenger accident yeah yeah you're right and then, mm-hmm. and then 9-11 came but of course we were more adults by then right so, mm-hmm. yeah you're absolutely good challenger what was it was that 88 87 maybe 88 might even been 86 i think yeah, I remember that. That was a big earth-shattering thing at the well, time. That was, you know, nothing like that before. And I'm not diminishing the tragedy of that, but if that were to happen today, it'd probably be out of the news cycle within 48 hours. Yeah. Because there's so much other stuff going on that it's exactly. like, yeah. oh, that shit. Because we've had shuttles go down since then, and yeah. it didn't yeah. leave near an impact. Mm-hmm. Of course, the the when the Challenger thing happened, it was 
we were at a point in time with NASA where shuttle launch was a big enough deal that it was covered by every network. Yeah. And the amount of people that were watching it live when it happened. Was it the Discovery one that went down in like 2003 or 2004 on re-entry at Burn Up? Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, you're absolutely right. And to show you how right you are, I had completely forgot about that until you mentioned it. Like, yeah, yeah, that was like the turning point of our... But in terms of like major events, of course, I remember obviously the the Rodney King thing and the the O.J. Simpson, the white Bronco chase and... <laughs> we grew up in a good time. We did. We did. We did. The only terrorists we cared about was Cobra. That's right. They were, <laughs> <laughs> they were the ones. They were the ones to worry about. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can still uh, watch uh, on YouTube right now. They still air every now and then. Uh, they'll uh, air uh, full marathons of old GI Joe cartoons. Man, you shouldn't have told me that. Yeah. My productivity is about to hit the toilet. <laughs> yeah. I had to laugh. I was because, of course, whenever I think about GI Joe, I gotta think about you because that was like our childhood. Yeah, yeah. Was you know the the backyards and that. Mm-hmm. God, that, I never remember her name, but that sweet old lady who lived between us, Miss Kreider. Miss Kreider. That Ms. was Kreider. Her, yeah. Who had no problem with us running back and forth through her backyard yeah. or through her front yard or mm-hmm. anytime we came and knocked on the door, she'd let us in and give us candy. Yeah. And we're like, hey, hey, Frederick, if you like some candy, <laughs> yeah, let's get some candy. Yeah. Hi, ma'am. You know. My folks didn't like me asking her for that stuff. Oh, really? Do. Not that, that, that they didn't think that it was, you know, any fear or anything. It's just, you shouldn't be asking people for candy. Right, yeah. yeah. Did I ever tell you about how much trouble I got in when when I was breaking those uh, Christmas bulbs at your house when we was really young? No. Yeah, I got the bell for that. What? <laughs> I don't even remember this happening. What, yeah, it what? Was, we was like really young. It was in uh, your garage. We found some uh, Christmas bulbs. Okay. And, you know, anytime it would break, it'd make nice little smashing noises. Yeah. Ooh, cool. Stuff like that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I got into some big trouble that day. How, how did that happen? Did my parents find out about it and tell your parents? Or? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I don't even remember. Them. Yeah. That's sad that I... That shows you how much I apparently didn't get in trouble for because I don't, yeah. know, I don't but you know what? that happened. But you know what? It was a good lesson, though. Yeah. Because it taught me... How to be respectful of other people's stuff. Yeah, that's true. And you know, my folks, they were, they were strict, mm-hmm. but they weren't severe disciplinarians. I think I've only had corporal punishment. I think I can count it on one hand. Right. Mm-hmm. One hand. Yeah, in the same and way. And it was for the biggest thing, and then it would always end with to be like, you know, you know why you, oh, I did that, don't you? <laughs> you know, you know. You, you, so don't do that again. You know, <laughs> you can tell that it was like. We didn't want to have to do that, but you know, so we let you know, please don't do that. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna have to say that um, I'm pretty sure both my parents are listeners to this podcast. Mm-hmm. So, mom and dad, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I don't remember the Christmas bulbs, <laughs> but it's probably right up there with the amount of other crap I smashed in that house as a kid that I got in trouble yeah. for. To me, it was probably just hey, like oh, I got yelled at again for something. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I remember us throwing rocks and the. Fire department came out and yelled at us. Yeah. That guy was really mad. Yeah. Didn't occur to me to later in life. Well, they were probably sleeping because they worked yeah. those twenty-four hour shifts, and here we were right outside their window throwing rocks at each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those those were good times. South Park Boulevard in the yeah. mid to late eighties. That was that was party zone, man. Yeah. It was a. Uh, that's the thing we we began talking about how what it's like to live in Freeport. It's sometimes I can't have, can't have any complaints about it. Mm-hmm. I, I feel I was lucky. Yeah. You know, to grow up in this community. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, 
you know, I, I, I always have fond memories of Freeport as a kid, you know, yeah. at the time, and I'm not saying that it's like terrible now or anything, but right. at the time there were, there was definitely a sense of community. Yeah. And well, you, I don't know if you remember when we were kids, uh, I, don't, I don't remember if you had moved then or not, but when they built Kids Castle down at Crate Park. I think I probably moved then. Okay. Yeah. Well, the, the park district had gotten the money together to buy all the materials. Mm-hmm. And so what they did is they put a call out to men in the community to come actually build it. And it was for like several weeks, like all these dads were going down there and volunteering all day doing construction on this thing and getting it built and put up. And when it was finally done and open, it was like this great like crown jewel of the community because it wasn't just, oh, you know, because if it was one of those things where the city just had the money and they bought it and a crew came in in two days, put it up, they would just be like, oh yeah, the park's got something that's kind of cool. But there was a bigger sense of pride because the community had to come together to get this thing built and it's still beautiful now when it was first built it was like to a kid it was like the Taj Mahal it was like oh my god look at this thing yeah and there's just even the little things like you could do back in the 80s like getting on the fire truck yeah that was, that was always fun <laughs> and uh, you know getting a snow cone oh yeah those were, those were always good going down to Reed Park yeah. that was always that was always the thing as a kid getting to go Fishing down at Crate Park, and a lot of that's still there. Still you know. there, you know, just putting in the little Cubs field. You know, they we we they, we try, you know? right? Yeah, we do try. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, especially when a lot of cases there were probably reasons not to. Yeah. There were plenty of times along the way the community could have just said the hell with it yeah. and walked away. But and even now we're starting to see a bigger resurgence of that. I've just I wasn't aware the level to which there was a progressive movement within Freeport. Yeah. Um, I wasn't aware of that until literally just the last couple months. Um, I'm not bad-mouthing anybody, but when I had David Soul from the Bernie campaign on my podcast, the amount of friend requests I got on Facebook from people in Freeport I didn't even know, mm-hmm. and I'm now getting contacted about causes and rallies and meetings, and it's kind of you know, like, it, at first of all, it was kind of like whiplash, because I didn't realize I had just set foot into this, like mayhem that was going on on the other hand i'm kind of like this is really cool. i wasn't even aware this was happening and these people were meeting and getting together and mm-hmm. so hopefully that means bright things are on the horizon yeah. I, i'm really really hoping so yeah, sometimes i look at people like jim phillips and i'm like i bet you he's gonna run one day <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. right yeah. <laughs> well frederick thanks so much for coming thanks oh, for coming thanks on for got anything you want to say in closing uh no i just again i appreciate you having me here you know, it's been really an honor to see how much you've grown up to be such an upstanding person and no, you know, a good family. <laughs> so, well, I should have—I should always known that that this is what you would be. So, well, yeah. that—that—that's good to hear. Hopefully, it continues yeah. to get better. Same to you. Yeah. You know, it's been kind of one of those interesting things where we were, you know, we were such good friends as kids, and then, yeah. and that's going back to what we said. That's that was kind of the nice thing about social media. Yeah, is that, that allows you to reconnect. Yeah, if it had been for social media, you'd be one of those people who would occur to me like once a year, and I'd be like, I wonder what he's up to now. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. Yeah. But now for well over a decade we've been able to keep in touch and comment yeah. and like on each other's stuff and laugh emoji at a lot of each other's stuff and you know <laughs> and i don't have to have to remind me to come down here and we can you know do some other stuff oh absolutely yeah, yeah. yeah. we're hoping we're um it's been I, i've come to realize that being a homeowner you're never done yeah unfortunately I, in the backyard me and the wife we've got like 15 yard projects that we got going on and Hopefully, once we get done with all that, and we're kind of getting, hopefully, getting to the point where we're eventually free of all this COVID stuff. Yeah, that's kind of our plan: is have a big yeah. barbecue cookout and have people like you and just 
It's gonna come. All kinds of people. It's so, gonna come. So we're it's hoping. It's a matter of time. People just gotta give it patience. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's all there is to it. All right. Well, once again, thanks for coming on. Um, I want to thank everybody for listening, and we are going to say goodbye.